Welcome to Kind Day versus the Machine. We're you know, back. normally this is a podcast where we are investigating or talking about movies from a very specific year. But nice enough, the Calgary International Film Festival is going on currently, and the Machine has transported us here to talk to some of the filmmakers that are here at the festival here with us. So I am really excited to talk here with Ellie Moon. Her film is called Adult Adoption, and it's playing at the festival here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming to the Calgary Film Festival, Machine. So kind. To let us watch modern film. It is, yes. We're usually stuck in the past talking about, you know, films way, way long ago. So it's always nice to have a modern film to kind of jump into and sink our teeth I get to visit my family, in. which yeah. is nice. Yeah. They must miss you. Yeah, a little bit. It's been three years. <laughs> you know, at this point, I would consider you a multi-hyphenate. So you are a playwright, screenwriter, actress. Which one of those do you think is the hardest? Ooh, good question. I think I probably find it the most difficult when I'm acting in something that I've written, which this is my second time doing that. I did that with one of my plays, but I didn't act in my other two plays. I'm acting in my first uh, screenplay. I think just the, uh, you know, that courage leap off the cliff that you do whenever you're being creative. I think the distance that I have to clear to get out of my head is just much, much bigger because I've been in my head with the script and I've, you know, I know how the lines are supposed to sound, which is something as an actor... I don't want to, you know, plan. There is a, a director for this movie. Yeah, thank God. Class, right? <laughs> well, I was going to ask, like, do you find yourself like wanting to step in at all? Or are you very hands-off? Oh, no. no. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I couldn't have directed this film. I don't have the skills. And Knox, like, I'm sure I will sing her praises throughout this uh, episode. But, you know, Knox is an exceptional, incredible director, like in every single capacity that the job entails. Like she's an amazing leader. When you're not sure about something, like she's the person that you want to turn to in the room. And I definitely don't want to be that person in the room. And she also is, you know, has vision overall, but also is incredible with like the minutia and with directing actors. So it's a vision of the film as, as a whole, but also like her ability to find different pathways. Wait, did you write it as a screenplay or as a play play? No, I wrote it as a screenplay okay. right away. Yeah. How does it feel when you watch it back? You know, there's one thing to be in the set to encompass the character. And then when you watch it uh, as a film, is it weird to kind of have your brain on a screen? <laughs> yeah. You know, I I feel quite a bit of separation from it, which is interesting. Like Knox and I are, are quite good friends. And when she was editing the film, I wasn't involved in that process at all. Um, she'd asked if I wanted to be, and I sort of said, you know, if there's anything that I can offer, um, if you have a specific question, totally. But for me, like my preference, like, no, I'll just see it when there's, you know, a rough cut or a fine cut. And there was no, you know, she didn't have any questions. She knew what she was doing with the editor. But I were friends. And so we were hanging out, you know, a few times, like while she was editing, but I hadn't seen it yet. And she was saying to me, like, it's really weird. Like I spend all day with you in this film and then I come and hang out with you. And it's like a completely different world. Like, I think you're really not going to feel like you're watching yourself when you watch this yeah. movie. And I was like, oh, that's very nice of her. But I, I think I'm going to feel like I'm watching myself. And I was amazed how much I don't. And that's, you know, the production design. That's the, the wardrobe. It's even like the way that I'm shot. Every detail in this movie kind of conspires to make it something that feels surprising to me, even though it's very loyal to the script and very much what I'd hoped and dreamed. It's also all sorts of things that surprise me. And I yeah, I feel quite separate from it in a funny way that I probably haven't felt with my plays. You know, that's very similar to this podcast. I'm normally the one who gets to edit them. So I constantly have Dave's voice in my head. Just exhausting. <laughs> yeah. What I'm curious about is that 
you your character in this film is basically in every single frame. Yeah. And you know, so I think at least for me, some people, some actors like hide behind their hands as they're yeah. watching their performances, but did you have the same issue? You know, she feels so bad about herself like the whole movie, and I don't think anyone like looks great when they're feeling bad about themselves. I think a lot of what's attractive about people is, you know, confidence, some sort of sense of security, and that's sort of how she had to look in the film. And we were we had a lot of conversations about how to achieve that, like what unflattering haircut I should get and like, you know, various things like that, because the last thing you want is for it to seem like an actress playing this role, you know. I know for me, one of the one of the things I think that really jumped out at me was how much this film is about touch, Ooh, like interesting. not wanting to be touched and then wanting to be touched in, in very different formats and ways. Is that something that you were intentionally trying to explore or is that just part of the many themes that are inside of this movie? That's so interesting what you say about touch because yeah. it's like, it's the push-pull, I think. She so desires closeness and touch and then when it comes near her, she freaks out. Yeah, in terms of like the impetus to write it, I mean, I have my own attachment traumas that I won't detail on a podcast, but like a little bit of that, a little bit of like learning other people's attachment traumas and the way that, you know, as a young adult, I think I assumed that at a certain point you get over stuff. And then in young adulthood, I kind of realized, oh no, like this is, this perpetuates forever. <laughs> and how do people deal with that in their, in their lives? I just like to tell people that it always gets worse. It's easier. Yeah. <laughs> it gets well, worse. That's true. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things I was pulling out of this uh, story, the script is how expectations kind of fuck that up. So mm. the main character, you are searching for family or some connection, but there is a story you tell yourself about what that's supposed to look like. Mm. I think we all do that. That's what's ultimately so disappointing. <laughs> can be, uh, but it can also be a great opportunity if you are able to have that conversation or be part of that relationship. You you both engage with the movie so deeply. I really appreciate these questions. I know, like for you, Dave, I mean, this movie is called Adult Adoption. So for you as husband, parent, were any of those themes resonant for you? I do get along with my parents now, uh, but I didn't before. Mm. You know, we had a lot of uh, tension growing up. And I think this idea of expectation plays such a strong, problematic yeah. role uh, both ways. That's where the story picks at you. And then you have to, as an audience, deal with that. That's so interesting because maybe I'm like giving away too much here. But in a general sense, like what I feel like the movie is about and the message of the movie is like, you do get unconditional love, but you don't, it doesn't look the way you think it looks. Like that's what the movie's about in the end. That was the thing yes. that I was kind of keen in on specifically was, I guess I was terming it compassion. Like you can't manufacture compassion. Like you can try and bring a parent into your life. Doesn't mean that they're going to give you the type of compassion that you're searching for or need or, or, or require. Because basically, and then maybe Dave, you're saying kind of the same thing here, is that everyone is a little bit self-involved <laughs> or a lot of to it, various sure, yeah. degrees mm -hmm. but like yeah. everyone is a bit self-involved so uh yeah no that, that was the fascinating thing as the as the film kind of progresses is like okay yeah n no one is getting exactly the type of love that they they want or require and sometimes it goes uh vastly off the rails i'll leave it at that yeah no i i really appreciate your observations about the movie because 
That's exactly it. It was really important to me when I was writing it. One of the things I got the most feedback on and we got the most feedback on as a team when we were funding it was like, where's the antagonist? Shouldn't there be someone who's messing it up for Rosie a little bit? And I really stuck to my guns around how like, no, like people are pretty nice to her. Like she's the beneficiary of a lot of generosity. The real enemy is like her ability to sit in that and take that in. And it really turned out the way that I wanted to. And in terms of that being very clearly the journey of the movie. And I'm glad I didn't yeah, make I her mean, boss meaner or, you know, one <laughs> yeah, of those things. Yeah. I think that's, that's so true nowadays. I, again, I'll just speak for myself that so often you get in your own way of stuff, like what you actually want or what you are desiring the most. You often are the one who ruins that for yourself because you, you overthink things or you just overanalyze something to the nth degree. So I found that very realistic, her her approach to, to certain things in this movie. Is that like a theme or idea that you've written about before? Or? Um, good question. Yeah, I would say that there are no bad guys in my plays either, actually, but I've only just thought about that now. Hmm. I mean, it's not a therapy session, but like, what, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> do like I believe in the goodness of people or something? <laughs> I think we, I do. We, we do have advice five cents, though, as a sign right now here in front of us. So. Well, because maybe, yeah, you have a sensitivity or an interest, I suppose, in that relationship between people that's like not so Hollywoody, so like melodramatic or so binary, right? It's interesting. I mean, there's a part where like a Hollywood film needs that bipolar attitude for to excite people and yeah. bring people in. Um, but from a conversational point or in a play, we can have a bit of a deeper, a wider or more subtle uh, idea of what people are supposed to be like. Um, yeah, that's true. I haven't thought about that, but plays probably have fewer antagonists than films. I don't know enough about plays. Well, I, I like them. But I, I, I am too. not a studier, yeah. <laughs> well, that was kind of my interest in this, too. It's I'm Definitely, you're not the first person to travel between theater and then go into film. But what was your journey into doing that? Let's start with theater first. Like, what got you into a love of theater? Oh, my God. What got me into theater? Um, as early as my memory starts, I, I grew up in a small town in Kingsville, Ontario, Canada's southernmost town. And... When I was uh, six or seven, they did their first community musical in like a, a gymnasium, basically with a stage that is three or four houses down from the house that I grew up in. And so, you know, that was, didn't involve my parents needing to drive me anywhere. It was very easy. It was basically free childcare. And so that's how I got my start. And then flash forward, I went to university for theater and then started working as an actor and a playwright pretty much right away out of school. Did those first plays get put on in Kingston specifically? In or? Kingsville? No, no, no. no. Uh, none of my work has, has premiered in Kingsville. Okay. No, my first plays, like I had a pretty good, you know, right out of the gate kind of whatever, debut to the Toronto theater scene because I uh, my play Asking For It premiered in the fall of 2017 and it was a co-pro between uh, Nightwood Theater and Crows Theater and those are, you know, big professional theater companies in Toronto. And then the following year, I had another one. And then the following year, I had another one at the Tarragon. It's which is quite high year. output. Yeah. yeah. You write a lot. I guess I do. I guess I do. I'm also, I think a lot of people write this much. I've been very lucky to have my work produced oh, in a timely fashion. I have to say, 
Dave is going to shake his head at me. I did do some light internet stalking here Ooh, this morning. And it's nothing you light are... about your internet stalking. <laughs> yeah, Seriously that's typing. true. I heard about how this podcast came to be. <laughs> that's that's, that's well, evidence hey, of your point. <laughs> I think there's a lot of hearsay in that. But still, <laughs> it does say that you are also part UK. Is, oh, yeah. Is, did you do any work over in the UK as well? I did, yeah, as, a, as an actor. Oh, um, gotcha. And I was part of, oh, my whole life's coming back to me now. I was part of a playwright like program. And that was a huge impetus for me moving moving back to Canada, actually, because I realized that I was really interested in writing plays, but that the plays that the UK had an appetite for were not, thing. they were very culturally specific work. At the time, it was like the working class is like, are, are having their revolution in like, you know, the UK theater. And so it was like, you know, plays called like, bloke about like a construction worker <laughs> in East London. I was like, yeah, I don't think I have anything to offer right, this right. conversation. You are starring in bloke though next season, I heard. So, <laughs> oh my yeah. God, a dream. <laughs> hey, I'll take, I'll take the job. You do have to tell me though about Secret Shakespeare. Oh I want my to know God. what that is. Okay. So when I first moved to Toronto, I was really trying to get in, meet people. And so I started with a friend, this initiative wherein, oh my God, I'll have to remember it now. So I adapt, I'm also, I'm a lover of Shakespeare. So I adapt a Shakespeare play so that it's, uh, I think an hour or an hour and a half, like mm -hmm. fairly short. And then we invite, this was before self-tapes were, you know, all the rage. This was pre-pandemic. But we invite self-tapes of people doing Shakespearean monologues. Uh, we mm -hmm. hire a director. They go through the self-tapes. They cast the play. They send people the scripts. People have, oh, I forget how long, but maybe like two months, like, a, you know, a little bit of time to learn their parts. And their parts, fortunately, are, because it's a, it's a very reduced adaption, their parts are cut down. And then they meet for 24 hours, and at the end of the 24 hours, a audience comes without knowing what play they're going to see. And then it, you know, speaking That's of expectation, cool. and they always enjoy themselves because it's like, you know, that buzz of you literally don't know the play you're going to see, you don't know the casting. And watching it was so exciting because you'd be watching people figure out that like, oh my God, that actor's playing that role. And like, this mm -hmm. is what we're about to see. And you'd watch even like the kind of the Shakespeare nerds, like someone get it after the first line and look around and be like, who else got it? Like it was, it was such yeah. a joy. So you were there, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was such a joy. Where, was, and where were these put on? We were so fortunate to get like volunteer spaces. Um, so, cool. so tons of theaters in the city donated their space. I mean, we did one at Canadian Stage. We did one at Crows. We did one at Unit 102, um, which is no longer there, unfortunately, but is now, lots of those people are now at the Assembly Theater. I'm blanking on where else we did them. That's neat though. Mm -hmm. They yeah. were so how, cool. And how it people was- people find out about it? Just within the community or? Yeah, just social media. You know, actors are so amazing. Like it gave me, I think the healthiest thing you can have as an actor is like a deep appreciation for other actors. And it just gave me that tenfold. I've seen some of my favorite performances of Shakespeare I've ever seen in my life on stage at Secret Shakespeare and like, you know, actors who have credits at Stratford, Shaw, like Christine Horn, who's this incredible actor who played Hamlet, you know, are donating their time to this for free. All the proceeds went to charities. So we were able to raise money for charities as well. So it was a, it was a really lovely time in my life. Yeah. What do, what do we do with our lives, Kyle? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, I have this microphone and that's... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> That's all I have right now, Dave. Don't take it away from me. Do you have a favorite Shakespeare just while we're on oh my that God. topic? Yeah, I do. The Winter's Tale. That's so weird because the movie, literally, the swearing jar that we just watched. Does it they, reference? They reference the Winter's Tale. Do they? They sure do. Yeah. Ooh. He speaks a line from it. So Which line? Oh, don't. I don't Come remember. on, Kyle. I can't pull this it This is out. your moment. I was to say the line is, come on, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Come on, Kyle. Yeah. That's William Shakespeare said. It's what uh, inspired Dexie's Midnight Runners. It's a cliche to say it now, but there, there often is that phrase of a movie being written three times, like the screenwriter, the director, and then the editor goes through it. Oh, so I each, haven't heard that, but that's each, good. Each person has the time to write the movie. So from the written page to the finished product, is it just like, yep, that's exactly what I thought? Or is there more like, no, like that was a great idea or like that edit is so great. You know, it kind of like I can pinpoint the exact moments and there aren't many of them where like I was like, oh, I didn't expect that, but I love it. Um, and then otherwise, Knox and I were so on the same page about this. Like we spent so much time. We actually had a year longer than we thought we were going to have because we were meant to shoot in March of 2020. And we ended up shooting in March of 2021. Yeah, that's odd. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, Why the year break? I know. Yeah. Um, you know, throughout that year where we had some downtime, we spent so much of it talking about like moment to moment. So there weren't a lot of you know, there weren't a lot of surprises. I'll say, I don't know if I can say this without spoiling anything, but one of the moments that happens with a song, mm -hmm. that that's in the script is happening in silence. Oh, interesting. And then when I saw it with the song, I was like, yep, that's better. that's better. You know, even the song, the Stars song that we have at the very end, that's in the script. Oh, and really? I didn't think, yeah, I didn't think we were going to be able to get that song. Did you call up Torquil himself and Literally, ask him? yeah. I literally did. Do you know Stars, Dave? I just made a reference, a Canadian reference. Oh, is, great band. Is there a song that I, I should know? I'll, I'll send you the playlist after. Okay. Great. Stars. Yeah, that song, that song was a song that I listened to when I was writing it, you know? I mean, a song I've listened to probably at least once every two weeks since I was like 10. It's one of my favorite songs. And then I can remember hearing it when I was like in my early 20s, right before I started writing this and being like, oh, that's what that song's about. Like understanding it for the first time and having the experience to be like, oh my God, this song. I've I always thought it was beautiful, but wow. I love those moments when it's like, oh, this song I've always loved is not about what I thought it was about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was driving it. my kid to school last year and uh, we listened to ACDC. And finally, it dawned on me, we should not be listening to ACDC. <laughs> oh, it's a kid. He's eight. Because he's learning about hookers. And I don't know if he's ready for that yet. That song rocks. So. <laughs> he's just listening to the melody. Yeah. No, he's singing the words. Yeah, he just doesn't. <laughs> That's, all so about them. That's so cute. <laughs> what do you think the movie's about, Dave? Loneliness, but how I think it's not a choice, but something from within oneself. It's not something we should be expecting another person to give to us. So when you described how you wanted everybody around her to not be antagonistic and everybody is supportive in their own way, like some people help in a really obnoxious <laughs> way. So, um, you know, being able to pull that back and understand that the intention counts for something. I mean, nobody's kind of an asshole in this film, but there are many films where someone tries to do the quote unquote right thing, but they're harming everybody around them. Mm. That stuff really makes me upset. Uh, I get sensitive to that. So that's kind of an interesting way for you to build this story. They're all trying to give her something. And she's kind, if anyone's an asshole in the movie, it's probably her, yes, right? Like yeah. she's, you know. <laughs> she's a little unhinged. You, yeah. I think you can empathize with her, but yeah, like the most unreasonable behavior comes from the protagonist. People are messy. What was the angle with foster care? It was fairly dramatic um, backstory. Is that something you've personally dealt with before? Did you decide that this would be an interesting way to give her such an extreme character? Uh, I think where it came from was I really wanted the focus to be like, we have a lot of stories about 
trauma plot stories, things that happen because something else happened. And I really wanted this to be about the trauma of what didn't happen in her life. Mm. And so I didn't want to make it like her parents died. I didn't want to make it like I wanted to make it like she literally never had the chance to form a secure attachment. And the reason I don't talk about like my personal history, aside from that just being a decision that I've made about how I'm going to be an artist at a time when there's a lot of pressure, I feel like, to kind of disclose any autobiographical stuff, is also because like in the process of sharing it, I have heard from so many people like, oh, I really relate to this because my mom died when I was 25 and I really wanted a mom after that even. Or I really relate to this because I just never connected with my parents or felt accepted by them. I really relate to this because my parents got divorced and I never saw my dad after that. Like I've heard every single version of like, this story is really personal to me because of, and then a totally different explanation. And so I think I want to honor that. Like her, her story is, her story is this, but really it's the story of just the trauma of things not happening that should have happened. It's like a negative space or something. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I mean, at the risk of oversharing myself. I, Go I, for it I, if you want. Everyone I can. No, I mean, that, that, you just shouldn't have to. You know what I mean? <laughs> Let me unfurl this scroll as I <laughs> unload my deep trauma. No, I was going to bring this up and we're here now, so we might as well. I feel that there's this idea in this movie that without like the proper, I don't know, example of love being shown at that age, adults kind of fumble. I think you fumble anyways, but you can extremely fumble if you're not really shown good role models for that sort of thing. In my own life, I know that what I've deeply struggled with for the last few years is like really confusing platonic love with sexual love, right? right. And sometimes mismatching where that is. So I, I think that there are certain explorations that happen even in this film where it's like, oh, like because there wasn't that... Um, example or because she's trying to learn this as an adult instead of like say as a teenager or as a, as a young kid it just is it, it's going sideways when it, when it doesn't have to be that way i don't know I, I felt a lot of empathy towards the main character throughout most of this so that's where i'm coming from yeah i mean i was thinking about how um my plays are more political and someone was asking me like is there any way that this movie's political and i was like well not really but if there's one way that i've snuck in something that's vaguely like a statement on, I don't know, the times we live in is that like, I really do think that everyone is as good as they've been given the opportunity to be in their life. And that if someone's an asshole, then you can work backwards and assume that they have some story for why they are that way. And, you know, Rosie doesn't look like, you know, it gets commented on and she doesn't look walking down the street. You wouldn't think that, oh, wow, that girl's probably had a really difficult life, but she has. And we don't know the lives of people that are walking around. I mean, it's, it's similar to not that I have like a deep history with this, but friends that I know who either like have Irish relatives specifically or grew up in Ireland always tell the same story about like how deeply traumatic their funerals are because they'll be like drinking and tell this like huge, like, oh my God, disturbing story. And, like, well, you know, that was life and they'll take a swig and then they move on. It's like, but you just told me like the wildest story wow. <laughs> right there. But you wouldn't know that if you're just, you know, seeing them walking down the street. So I think to your point, it's true. It's like, you can't really tell someone's backstory just by observing them necessarily yeah so write in it's, people from ireland let me know if i'm right, I was gonna right say in. just offended a large uh, swath swath of yeah. people and maybe i'm going too far back here and you can just cut this because it'll be confusing but my first play was about sexual consent and the sort of jumping off point was the gameshi you know right. case not like 
it doesn't actually have anything to do with Gameshi. It's like a few people say his name, but it's more like the conversations that happened among young women when that uh, happened because For non-canadian listeners <laughs> yeah Gian yeah. Gelmishi was uh, a big sc scandal here yeah he was a very popular radio show host actually we did the play about him in a setup that looked exactly like this we did it oh, really? actually like that makes a, sense yeah. yeah yeah but as part of that i watched lots of the trials and followed them they don't actually figure into the play at all but just for my own you know interest really uh, and maybe i thought they would at one point but it was very interesting that like the same the same behaviors that are brought up in victim impact statements is like you know after this thing happened to me i behaved erratically i alienated people i blah blah, blah. you hear those things said and then in the same day you hear people try to discredit the victims by saying well they're erratic and mm -hmm. they alienate people and you're like whoa so we're saying that this is both like a natural outcome of experiencing abuse, but also a thing that makes them not credible to have experienced abuse. Like that kind of blew my mind. And I think there's some of that in what I've been exploring since. And in my kind of theory of like, people are probably just as good as, you know, they've mm -hmm. been given the opportunity to be. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I read this book, uh, I think it's called The End of Bias, mm -hmm. but they bring yes. about a lot of examples like that about uh, what's the official, I don't know, like, self-informing biases so one of the examples they had was the asian woman that got fired from was it reddit google i can't remember eileen Wu or goo it doesn't matter so she got fired for having sort of a shitty attitude because she asked for a raise and then when she that she sued whatever tech company and that was a really big story five or six years ago and so she was characterized as as a bitch, like as a horrible person to work with. But then the irony of the bias is that because she's a woman and she's Asian, the expectation is that she's going to be subservient and polite and yeah. conceding. And she wanted to break that barrier. So in doing that, she became the oh, terrible. Yeah. yeah. So it, these are interesting ideas of um, not expectations maybe too broad of a word but yeah biased it's just interesting like how we characterize people yeah and generally how we do like the the hunt for the bad guy like in our lives is yeah. a very interesting phenomenon and that even when we've entered this sort of place where we understand things like biases and we understand you know the effects of trauma there's still a kind of a need to find a a bad an guy. Enemy. Yeah. I mean, that, that's such an interesting thing in this film. Like, there isn't really an external bad guy in this Not film. Not at all. And I think I was at the halfway point. It. I was waiting for like the yeah. bad guy to show up. I'm like, oh no, that's just not what this movie is interested in. Would you prefer that an audience had that expectation, or would, is it more fun to just watch them wait? for a monster to appear and then have to deal with it at the end of the film that this is about something completely different because anybody i think i mean this is presumptuous but anybody who watches a feature film is is expecting a bad a bad guy i think at some level it's a pretty straightforward writing process not a good one necessarily. Yeah, yeah. But i feel like it, honestly as we get more and more films by women we're gonna have that less and less like yes. i don't think women talking has a bad guy i don't think well i don't have any others Lost to name right now but or something like that, yeah right? no exactly yeah. i i do think it's a very kind of male standard but yeah i mean i don't think i have any I don't think I've thought about what I hope they they know or think going in. I've really enjoyed sitting with them as they've made discoveries. And I think just because we're a, a small film and we premiered, you know, across the, the old world, across the pond, like I've mostly sat in screenings with people that have gone into it blind. And it's been 
really exciting and satisfying to follow them following it. I do want to just acknowledge here too, we've we've spent a long time kind of delving into kind of like the darkness and the themes of this film. I do want to make a point to <laughs> yeah. say that it is darkly humorous at the same time. Like there is some yeah. funny bits I feel like happen. it's a comedy, actually. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it is more than a drama, a comedy. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want everyone to like come always <laughs> like, oh my gosh, this is like a deeply dramatic well, film yeah. people are sitting down for. Oh God, I, thought, I forgot people were listening to this. <laughs> well, it's hard microphone. to talk about that because we're not talking about the plot. I'm trying not to give away too much about it. Mm-hmm. So, But there's a lot of ridiculous things that yeah, happen. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our, our little call thing that we say in our podcast all the time is we when we talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. So we have like these deep conversations about uh, the secret long. of him. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, this is a kid's film too, by the way. <laughs> like, we shouldn't be super intense about this. With the idea in mind that this is a comedy as well, though, Dave, you mentioned loneliness. And I, I was also thinking that word. And then it kind of, I was kind of ruminating on it. And it's like, well, yeah, it's kind of loneliness, kind of melancholy, almost like a yearning for something that feels like yeah. it's the undercurrent of this entire movie. When you were talking about the relationship to touch and I said the thing about the push-pull, it popped into my mind and I was like, I don't know if I should say this, but um, that I have a a little dog that I adopted uh, when he was 12. He's now 17, so he might not actually be 17. I suspect they, you know, got his age wrong. Yeah, maybe. But he definitely had been through some shit when I adopted him, um, which is also why he might have seemed older. He had this fascinating physicality. He's like six pounds and he's this like fluffy little, like he looks like a stuffed animal. He's the best baby in the world. And he would come up to me like so wanting to like cuddle and and, and get close to me. And then I would kind of like move to pet him or just like move in. A, and he would like be so skittish and kind of like, mm. and, it, and it's hilarious. Like it's adorable, but it's hilarious. He's actually, listeners will be happy to know after five years, like he doesn't really do that anymore. He has actually transformed from, you know, having a secure connection with me. But for the first like two or three years that I had him, and certainly while I was writing this, he, he did that and I do think maybe subconsciously the comedy of that got into me I said to Knox who knows my dog at one point, I was like, I feel like I'm doing an impression of Sasha. <laughs> I just realized I'm playing my dog. Oh, I love that. That's yeah. great. Weirdly enough, there's a there's a similarity in my background. When I first moved to Calgary, the first place I lived in was a cousin of a friend of mine, and she rescued dogs. Aww. So there's always different dogs coming through. But once she kept for the longest, I don't know what breed it was. It looked like an albino husky, but it, it wasn't. It was coming from a place that had basically been chained to a wobble, like very traumatic stuff. And that was for the first few months, like you could not touch it without it trembling yeah like it was, it was like so scared you're gonna hit it sort of thing so it took a while to be like nope you're not gonna get hit you're not gonna get hit for it to feel comfortable and i'm glad you brought that story up because yeah that's exactly what this feels like is someone yeah. being like oh i'm 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 expecting something bad to happen and kind of having to deal with that yeah, what's your dog story dave oh uh, yeah do you yeah. have a dog i know i'm not a dog person what I, um, is your eight-year-old a dog person not yet because he knows that if he wants one he's doing all the work nah, no my brother my brother my brother has a dog salon and my brother used to rescue dogs in california when he lived there oh my God. so yeah i think it's interesting just kind of tying that to this film and and you're uh being a rescuer, someone who's caring for a dog that had gone through trauma, that you're so idealistic that people can get back to some normalcy if they've been given enough space. Oh, yeah. Uh, Because, uh, you know, perhaps this is why a lot of male stories are so violent because nobody gives these men that space. And so they're constantly trying to strike out at things. And we're in a new age where it's easier for everybody to talk to each other about stuff whether they choose to do that is a different problem altogether 
but it's in there. The way you described your experience with your dog, it's, abs it's absolutely in this movie. It's yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? <laughs> the other thing that I might add to that is uh, I'm assuming you guys don't have kids, but I yeah. learned the hard way that uh, no matter who you think you are, as soon as you have a kid, you're your parents. Mm. And uh -huh. that's, uh, it's fascinating because I think the story talks about this. You know, you're, she doesn't have a lived experience to lean on, so she mm. has trouble fitting in. Yeah, that's going to happen if you have a kid. <laughs> because uh, no matter how many books you read or how many friends you have or whatever, you, you'll always end up at your intuitive experience, and that's tough. And uh, it just gets worse. You know, that's the, the bottom <laughs> that's, line. Yeah, is. The, bottom the title line. of the, this episode. But it's yeah. actually, it uh, I find it hopeful because I, I think that if people embrace it, it doesn't mean that you're going to hate your life. But it's no. just. It uh, gets worse, but you get better at dealing with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? That's why a lot of old people just turn the volume down and just stop giving a shit. It's fun. Yeah. yeah. Just watch Jeopardy. Must be old. <laughs> Out, yeah. Outside of <laughs> film festivals. Yeah. Where can people find this film in the next few months? Or do you know? Ooh. Um, well, we have have Canadian and US, although we haven't announced our US distributor uh, distribution, but I don't think I'm able to share that yet. I think there's going That's to fair. be a, a grand announcement. announcement. Yeah, but it will be available to stream in Canada and the US. Oh, oh cool. So it's, it's going to be out there. On your IMDB page. Oh, God. It does say that your next project is called What I Call Her, oh which I believe is a play that you wrote as well. You have really done your research. This is the dynamic of our show. I do the research and Dave shows up. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It works for me. It works for Yeah. <laughs> that has not started actually filming yet from what I understand. No. So when does that go into actual production? We were thinking January and now we are thinking March because some work has come up for both of us that is keeping us busy. March really seems to be the month for me yeah. and Knox. We, Good month. Yeah, we made adult adoption in March. We premiered it in March, and now we're going to make this next film in March. And what is it about? It is about two siblings on, uh, I think it's not a spoiler to say, the eve of their mother's death, mm. very terminally ill with cancer. And one sibling believes that the mother was uh, abusive, like physically abusive, and the other thinks that that is a cruel fabrication. Mm. You know, it's that, that quote from Shaw, it's like, a family is a tyranny run by the sickest member or weakest member. I can't remember which. And this is the battle to the death about who that was, whether it was the older sister, whether it was the mom. That's and great. I, I, yeah. I don't know what your history is, Dave, but man, even with my, I'm a middle child. So mm -hmm. me and my siblings definitely have disagreements about what our parents and like what happened at certain points in our lives. So yeah, Absolutely. I was the trauma kid. And I think... Um, <laughs> I was listening to a podcast. It was from this trauma specialist. Someone was interviewing a trauma specialist. And he had this great observation that trauma is not about the extent of the violence or how we measure it, but it's about how a person perceives what they're going through. And so he kind of put up a semi-rhetorical question to the interviewer, like, uh, you and your brother, do you think you had the same parents? Your parents were different people to each of you, mm -hmm. not because they're different people individually, but how you perceive what your parents do or say or interact, the idea you're going to tackle is fascinating because thank you uh, we are here at the calgary international film festival the machine has printed out this lovely notice oh, for you right. to read dave oh should i actually say our podcast name this time or does yeah, it matter? do what you want this episode of insert podcast name insert podcast name was recorded on site at the calgary international film festival now in its 23rd year sif brings the best of alberta canadian and world cinema to calgary each fall Sign up for the SIF newsletter at sifcalgary.ca slash newsletter or follow at sifcalgary on all platforms to be sure you don't miss out on any of the exciting upcoming events. 
There's a number. Sif? Like, because Calgary's a hard C, so it feels like it, it should, should be, be Kif. Kif, although that not. sounds weird, I guess. Yeah, it sounds Sif. We should start it saying sounds Kif. sounds like a slur, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's too hard. Oh, um, filmmaker slur. It's like slur uh, Jif and Gif. It's bullshit. Oh, mm. Jif is what the creator wanted them to say. Yeah, because it just makes sense. Gif. GIF is a weird word. When this GIF. episode goes GIF. live, you still have an opportunity to go and see Adult Adoption here at the Calgary International Film Festival. So this Saturday, October the 1st, at 11 a.m., people can come and uh, give it a watch. Amazing. Please do. Mm-hmm. Please do. Don't, don't you know, take anything I said as reason to That's not right. see the film. <laughs> I definitely, yeah, you should see this with an audience. <laughs> I think this would be a great film to see with an audience and, yeah. and hear the reactions to certain scenes. Where can people find you online, follow oh, yeah. you, see what you're up to, that sort of thing? I'm only on Instagram, and I'm at Ellie Mooner. So my name with E-R. Ellie Moon was taken, oh, so, you I know. See. I love it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for your questions. They were wonderful. And uh, yeah, yeah, have a happy festival. <laughs> See other podcasts. We know what we're doing. <laughs>